You're listening to the voice of the Caribbean radio, your source for news, sports, and entertainment in the Caribbean. Let's talk St. Kitts and Nevis, a talk show and current affairs program focusing on St. Kitts and Nevis, the Caribbean, and international news. Every Tuesday at 10 a.m. on Voice of the Caribbean Radio, join host Andre Huey as he delves into topical issues of the day. We'll open the lines so you can call in and be part of the discussion. And he'll feature guests each week to help shed light on the various topics of discussion. Let's talk St. Kitts and Nevis with Andre Huey, Tuesdays at 10 a.m. with rebroadcasts on Wednesdays and Fridays, also at 10 a.m. on Voice of the Caribbean Radio at voiceofthecaribbean.net. Also listen on our Android mobile app and tune in radio. Voice of the Caribbean Radio, reaching the Caribbean and beyond. This is Let's Talks and Kids Nevis right here on Voice of the Caribbean Radio at voiceofthecaribbean.net. I'm your host, Andre Huey. Today we'll be discussing politics, Caribbean politics. We'll start with St. Kitts Nevis. We'll look at the latest political development in the election petitions being withdrawn by the opposition St. Kitts Nevis Labour Party. Why was this done and what does this mean for the Labour Party and by extension the Team Unity government that won the election handsomely in the June 5th general elections. We'll be speaking with uh, political analyst and pollster Peter Wickham not only about this but we'll also talk to him about politics across the Caribbean. Jamaica's having their elections coming up. Trinidad and Tobago just completed theirs. And we see a situation in Guyana where it seems as if the political situation there has been resolved with the swearing-in of the new president and new government of Guyana. All that we'll be t- speaking about on today's edition of Let's Talk St. Kitts-Nevis. But first, we'll take a break and be right back. This is VOC Radio, the voice of the Caribbean. In stressful times, you need relief, a way to release your stress and care for your health. You need Serenity. Yes, Serenity Mobile Spa, where we come to your home and offer the very best in massage and spa treatment. Your health is our priority as we practice the highest hygiene procedures before, during, and after your treatment. Choose from massages to meet your physical needs, scrubs, facials, waxing, and much more. We also provide our customers a complimentary serving of refreshing local coconut water with each massage. During these restricted times, we urge our customers to stay healthy. We will come to you. Call us at 7620157 or 7608899. Find us on Facebook, Serenity Mobile Spa Sinket, or email us at Serenity Mobile Spa. 869 at gmail.com. Serenity Mobile Spa. Auto Plus Car Wash, located on the Collins Street Gut, Bastier St. Kitts. Bring your car to Auto Plus Car Wash to remove water stains, wiper marks, get your doors, roof panel cleaned, seat floor mats, buffing, headlights, and engine wash. You get quality service at the best price at Auto Plus Car Wash. They really care for your car. Call 765-5140 or visit them on the College Street Gut, Bastyr St. Kitts. Auto Plus Car Wash, where the service is number one. KVK Enterprises at Boyd's Housing Development, Trinity Parish, St. Kitts. For all your t-shirt printing, banners and signs, promotional products, shipping, motivational speeches, computer classes, agro-processing, art and craft, and desktop publishing. Come to KVK Enterprises at Boyd's Housing Development, Trinity, St. Kitts. Telephone 661-0118 or 765-7270. Email drkhrystus at kvklives.com or visit www.kvklives.com KVK Enterprises Voice of the Caribbean Radio VOC Radio Stay locked on 
Welcome to Let's Talks and Kiss Nevis here on Voice of the Caribbean Radio at voiceofthecaribbean.net. I'm Andre Huey. Well, as I indicated before the break, we'll be discussing politics in St. Kitts and Nevis and the wider Caribbean. The latest political development, the St. Kitts Nevis Labour Party, the opposition, withdrew six election petitions it filed against the results of the June 5th general elections. They claimed bribery and uh, electoral irregularities and several other uh, irregularities that occurred on election day. However, they withdrew those petitions without offering a detailed explanation as to why they did this. Before we get into our interview with uh, Peter Wickham, we're going to hear this report from SK Newsline as the leader of the opposition and the leader of the Labour Party, Dr. Denzel Douglas, explained to our reporter uh, at our sister media entity at SK Newsline, Glenn Bart, as to why the Labour Party withdrew those petitions. Leader of the opposition, Sinkis Nevis Labour Party, Dr. Denzel Douglas, said the recent withdrawals of the election petitions from the High Court is by no means a concession to the results. Just weeks ago, the unexpected withdrawal of electoral petition cases on behalf of six candidates that ran on St. Kitts disappointed many supporters of the Labour Party. It was said the cases were withdrawn due to technical matters. Speaking to SK Newsline during a short break in the 13th August parliamentary sitting, Dr. Douglas elaborated on the withdrawal and said the party will still pursue the issues surrounding the elections in the interest of fairness and justice. The election petitions that were filed in the High Court, as you would have heard, notice has been given to the court of their withdrawal. Council has advised, and we as clients have accepted, the notice of withdrawal because of some errors we understand that were made pertaining to the notification of relevant court officials regarding the payment of the security that is usually expected to be paid in cases of this kind. We believe that the best efforts of our council were being pursued on this matter. But as I said, errors in procedure would have caused us to agree for the withdrawal of the petitions from the court. This does not mean, however, that the merits with regard to the claims that were made, claims of corruption, claims of treating, claims of illegal, illegally, I would say, promising and distributing state assets in the form of government lands for votes. We believe that the merits of those claims are relevant, they were justly made, and they need to be pursued. I would wish to emphasize that despite what appears to be a setback, we will continue to explore ways and means by which serious claims of bribery and general corruption being practiced in that general election of the 5th of June 2020, that those matters should still be brought to the court and we are seeking how such can be explored in the fairness in the in the hope that fairness and justice will be there. So um, does this also mean that um, this is not a concession of the election? No, definitely not. Okay. Because we know exactly what took place on election day. Dr. Denzel Douglas speaking in Parliament. Glenbad, SKN Newsline. All right, so we have with us on the line Peter Wickham from Cadres, and um, he is going to be speaking with us on a number of um, political issues 
across the Caribbean, but we're going to start with home. We're going to start with St. Kitts Nevis. Peter, mm. welcome to the program. Happy to have you. Thank you. Good to be with you again. Yeah. Now, we came out of elections here in St. Kitts Nevis. Uh, it's been, what, two months? Um, mm. Not long after the elections, the opposition, St. Kitts Nevis Labour Party, uh, said that they were going to be filing petitions. Uh, cutting a long story short, they filed six petitions in six of the constituencies, alleging voter irregularity, they alleged bribery, they alleged electoral fraud, etc. But surprisingly, a few weeks later, they withdrew the petitions, which is kind of unprecedented. Um, I'm going to get into the reason why they, they, they did that, but I just want to get your thoughts about what you thought about uh, when you first heard of the petitions being withdrawn. Yeah, I, I was I was surprised. Um, my, my feeling is that the reason that the petition was started in the first place because they were part of a program to maintain the relevance of the current leader of the opposition uh, so that he could continue to say that he didn't lose the election and there was no need to concede because he was treated unfairly. Um, my, my assumption was that the petitions would have gone on for some time and that would have given him enough time to continue to peddle this argument that he is, is still effectively the legitimate leader, well, had he won, of the Sinkis and Nevis. Uh, and, and for that reason, you know, he would have stayed. I, I was very surprised when I heard they were withdrawn because to me it was, a, it was a unilateral decision that essentially put him in a very vulnerable position because uh, without the petitions, then basically he lost the election, which is a, an admission that he was unwilling to make. So I was was really quite surprised. When you also consider that the um, the allegations were were really far far reaching, um, did you ever, in your thought, believe that the the petitions would have been successful in the court eventually, if they if they made it to the court? Yeah. Um, I mean, the petitions were not as far-reaching as you may think. Well, you think, think the word you were probably was stretching for was far-fetched. Um, the, the petitions didn't particularly seem to have a lot of substance in them. Um, they were essentially saying that, you know, the, the government did pretty much all the things that governments do when they're trying to run an election. And, and the suggestion that there was anything extraordinary about the way in which the um, St. Kitts government spent money and, and, and essentially ran projects in the lead up to the election um, and essentially managed their type, their incumbency to win the election uh, was no different to several others. So for, for those reasons, I thought that the, the, the charges that were being made were, as I said, were a bit to suggest that this was the reason that the election was when I thought was a bit odd. Um, so, you know, my assumption was that they would have been weak. But, you know, I mean, we've had a history in the Caribbean of, of weak petitions being filed. If you look at Trinidad and Tobago, just five years ago, we had a petition that the rain would have selectively fallen in, in different areas. And it was re as a result of that, that the delays uh, in the, well, the extension in the, the count caused by rain uh, affected only three or four particular constituencies, but none others. And it just happened to be these three or four where the margins were quite small. And that was a petition that went to the Trinidad court. It was rejected ultimately, but it didn't stop it from going. So I'm saying that we've seen these kinds of things before in the Caribbean where petitions go forward, petitions that appear to lack the kind of substance that one would expect, um, uh, but they have gone forward nonetheless. Uh, the, the more successful petition or the most successful petition of recent times, which was the one that went forward in Nevis, um, had a bit more substance to it than this one. And, and this one didn't seem particularly strong, but I was not expecting it to be withdrawn because I figured it would have gone forward, it would have been fought. Uh, and then it would have given the opposition the opportunity to say, look, we, we, we carry this argument to its logical conclusion and we lost it, but we're still convinced that there was something in it. The, the idea of unilateral withdrawal, however, makes it difficult to argue that you have fought it to the end. Uh, and I think even in terms of how it was withdrawn, and I don't know if we're gonna get to that later in the conversation, it, it seemed a bit unusual to me because the announcement that we saw in the press uh, basically said that the opposite, the government exploited some errors and, and forced them to withdraw the matter. Uh, and then we subsequently heard, certainly from Dr. Douglas in his, his piece that he did with you, that the matter was unilaterally withdrawn because there were some, some mistakes that were made regarding the filing. Uh, and it appeared as though it was more unilateral than had, had been previously suggested by the Labour Party um, news machine. So th th it does create some confusion. To me, if you have a strong case, you don't, you don't make mistakes like that, especially as <clears throat> we're told that the case was so strong 
based on legal advice that they have received some some fairly high-powered attorneys that they had employed. Um, so if, as I said before, if they were employing these high-powered attorneys, uh, presumably they would have told them how to file the case properly so they wouldn't lose it. So it seems odd. It really does. Well, let me go to that since you brought it up, because actually that was my next question. The explanation given by Dr. Douglas as to the reason, and of course you rightfully pointed out that the information that was given when the petitions were withdrawn is totally different from what we're hearing from Dr. Douglas mm -hmm. as it pertains to why the petitions were withdrawn. Do you think it was a matter of saving face? Why do you think the, the, it came to this? Because like I said, I was surprised, and I'm sure a lot of people, including Labour Party supporters, were surprised when the petitions were withdrawn. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. Uh, and I struggle to find some kind of logic for it because um, it, it really does expose you politically. Um, my only assumption was that they felt that fighting the petitions and failing in that regard would have exposed them even more. Um, the courts, certainly if you look at what the courts have been, the position they've been taking in Guyana, is that they, they seem to be getting to the stage where they're looking to impose some fairly hefty fees and costs in situations where uh, matters which are frivolous are, are sent to the courts. Now, I don't know whether this would have been a concern for the for the Labour Party, whether they were concerned about the costs that they would have been facing had the government defended this and then they were faced with, with costs that they had to deal with. Um, I don't know whether that was a factor. I would be inclined to think that it could not have been an issue of money. So there has to be some other strategic reason. And honestly, I think in, in, in the absence of anything coming from them directly, we, we have to guess. Um, my guess is that, you know, on reflection, the, the party has had some conversations in which they have determined that the, the matter uh, was not strong enough to go forward. And, and they felt that they saved more face by discontinuing it now than to discontinue it later. Um, my sense is that Dr. Douglas is under severe pressure within the Labour Party uh, for, for him to, to move aside and to allow someone else to come to the fore. And I think it's entirely possible that this is all part of the kinds of machinations that you're seeing within the Labour Party, where uh, he's trying to hang on uh, in his traditional typical style and, and he is being tugged and pulled from other sides of people who are saying, you know, it's time for us to turn over a new page. Uh, and I should point out that in the past, Labour Party has had a history of, of presenting all kinds of stories and arguments that don't seem to always gel. And I think that sometimes it's difficult to understand what's the real true story because you have a statement that is made and you know you never really know. I mean, if you look at their past legal battles, um, on every occasion, there was a victory, even in situations where there wasn't a victory. Um, the, the last one with Dr. Douglas and the passport case, you know, the Labour Party propaganda was fairly convincing, you know, that he was right, uh, to the point where we, we didn't even know that an appeal was filed and when the appeal was successful, you know, he had to admit that there was, um, you know, there was a loss. And, and that was one of the few occasions where we heard him actually admit that they had been defeated. And even then he said, look, you know, this was the thing that we, we, we have a different opinion. You know, we thought we were right. So it's interesting. Indeed. Mm. Well, the point I also want to raise with you on that as well is, uh, and the point you raised earlier about the Labour Party or Dr. Douglas being somewhat under pressure, but he's the most senior person in the party at this point in time. Not only is he more senior, um, he's also one of the two elected representatives in parliament. So how could he possibly be under any intense pressure to, to step aside when he more or less is the, if you want to put it, the party itself? Yeah, but I mean, if you recall during the last election and um, if you recall the cadres polling, you know, um, they, they had their own polls and I don't know what their pollster was telling them. But the polling that I saw, the poll data that we produced was fairly clear that a big part of the reason why the Labour Party was losing was, was because of Dr. Douglas. Um, in the wake of the election, you know, I have had supporters um, and certainly people from the inside approach me directly and say to me, you know, um, Peter, the polls that you were referring to were entirely accurate because this is what we were hearing from people on the ground. Now, I would appreciate that they are not going to want to publicly state this. Um, so my feeling is that if there is a sense that Dr. Douglas's presence in the Labour Party is more a hindrance than, than a help, 
um, you know, is, is consistent with the arguments that I have been bringing all along, that Dr. Douglas has a distinguished legacy, which is damaging now by continuing with these political shenanigans over and over again. So if it is that there are people on the inside that are convinced that this is the case, maybe they're putting pressure on him to say, look, maybe it's time for the Labour Party to breathe again. Maybe it's time for you to, to release your shackles somewhat and to allow new blood to come forward. And, and you know, part of the reason that we're not having the kinds of electoral success, maybe it's because of you. And I think that if you have a political organization that is 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 tugging and pulling in this way, then you know his seniority, uh, in a sense, becomes more of an indictment or more of an albatross than anything else. And 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 this is what he seems to be facing. Right. Um, on that sub subject of Dr. Douglas, and 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 we've spoken at length from time to time about um, Dr. Douglas and his the future of the leadership of the party. Um, when you look at the support that he had he, he has one of the strongest constituencies in the federation he has supporters who have time to time said leave dr douglas alone we don't want him to go anywhere we want him to be our leader and so you still have he still has that underbelly of support in the party now in, in light of that would it be wise for him at this point in time to step aside well, you see, that's the thing. I mean, to start with, Dr. Douglas is not going to lose that seat. And I think that that, in a sense, is 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 probably good and bad for the uh, Labour Party. Uh, it's good in that, you know, they have a solid seat. It, it's bad in the sense that he will always be there. And if it is the fact that he is a problem, if it is a, a fact, then he's always there to, to present that problem. Um, you know, in many cases, for example, in the case of, of, of Grenada, uh, when you had a clean sweep and they lost all of the seats, including the leader, it's easier to rebuild a party where the leader does not win his seat. But Dr. Douglas will always win his seat. So that will be, it will have to be a, a negotiated arrangement because he will always be in control of that seat. Um, political parties are, are notoriously odd institutions. They present the view that they are essentially the body that throws up the leader and supports the leader. When my understanding of political parties and the way that they operate in the Caribbean is that it's almost akin to a king, where you know you say the king is dead, long live the king. Once the person is leader, the party will support that person. Uh, you have had situations in the Caribbean, if you look at Barbados recently, where um, every single seat was lost, including the leaders, but yet still, right up until the end, you know there were people who were very strong in support of the fact that this current leader who it was painfully obvious had uh, the least possible support in the region that you could find. Um, you know, he was pretty unpopular, but there were people there who were supporting him. Now, Dr. Douglas is not, not friend of Stuart. Dr. Douglas is a leader who has had considerable success in the past uh, and he has his people. So across St. Kitts and Nevis, he will have his people who will be there for him or who will solidly support any opportunity because they believe that he's the only person that can lead the Labour Party well. Um, that's a, a problem for them because once these people are shouting in his ear, it's difficult for him to hear evidence that comes forward from someone like Peter Wakem from Cadres that says, you know, you don't worry about what you're hearing. The reality, however, is a situation where um, you are more of a problem than anything else. Um, I always say to people that in the Caribbean or in most political, most countries, you have a situation where you have 40% of the people on one side, 40% of the people on the other side, and it's 20% that essentially are the swing voters that make the difference. You can feel comfortable speaking to that 40%, and I think that that's essentially what Dr. Douglas is doing. You speak to them, those 40% will deliver you one or two seats. They will deliver you um, a level of support in your constituency that's high. The problem is that they can't always deliver you a government. And I think that this is the, the, the kind of analysis that has to be done now. Will the Labour Party base to which they are appealing, uh, uh, which is popular with Dr. Douglas, will that base deliver them an election? And I don't believe that it will uh, in the future, you know. Um, and my, th my sense is that, you know, if you come to, another two years and Dr. Douglas is still there, then it, it creates a question. You have a situation where the current leader has indicated that this will be his last term. Um, so while you're gonna have an alternative leader thrown up in, 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 um, in team unity and, and you will still have Dr. Douglas maintaining that, that he, he was the person who should have led uh, because you know Prime Minister Harris only wanted to be leader. And the point is that you know he was leader, he's moved on, but you're still not retiring. It's gonna be challenging for him to, to, to bring that forward. And as I said, I don't believe that the 40% base that he's appealing to is gonna be particularly helpful in the future. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I know we've, we've spoken about this and we're going to move on from this point, but I just want to get your mm-hmm. views, particularly again, in light of the new situation that we're seeing. Um, the Labour Party had some, or still has, I should say, um, bright prospects in terms of leadership. You had a senior mm-hmm. person in terms of Marcella Lybert, but she lost her seat. You had a mm-hmm. upcoming rising star in the chairman of the party, Dr. Terence Drew. Mm-hmm. He didn't win his seat. You had a leadership prospect in Congress Maynard. He lost his seat. So with that situation in place, what does the Labour Party do at this point in time in terms of leadership? Yeah. No, it's a, it's a difficult challenge. And, um, you know, you, you, you just said, I mean, you had the three potential leaders and all of them have either lost their seat, having been elected, or alternatively, Dr. Drew, who I think is the most tragic case of all of them, um, has, has, even though he has all this leadership potential, he's never gained a seat in the first place. Uh, and as I said, I think it's tragic because I think left to his own, he probably would have done a lot better in politics. The problem is that there are people who he has to appeal to that are not voting for him. They're voting, they, they see themselves as voting for Dr. Douglas and they're not comfortable doing with the, dealing with that. So that, that's a challenge that has to be dealt with. And, and you have a peculiar problem in St. Kitts and Nevis in that in most other countries of the Caribbean, a, a person like Terence Drew could be in the Senate and he could be essentially leading the Labour Party charge from the Senate and it would be empowered him. It would empower him to some extent. Um, it's not possible in St. Kitts and Nevis because the convention is that if you don't get into the lower house and you can't go to the upper. Uh, and I think that that creates additional problems where you have some good potential candidates like, like the three that you mentioned who could be in the Senate and who could be carrying the Labour Party fight from that level. But because of the way that your system is structured, um, you know, the framers of your constitution determine that persons who don't who fail at one level shouldn't go to the other level, and as a result, they can't. So it's going to be difficult for them. And as I said, what will really be necessary is some kind of a concession on Dr. Douglas's part, where he says, I will make space for one of these people to go forward. Uh, and, and I suspect that, that Dr. Drew may very well be one of the key beneficiaries if a decision like that is made. Um, you know, I I would be very surprised if Dr. Douglas gives give up his seat, which would be the 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 ideal thing. But um, in light of that, or in the absence of that, it it basically means that you're going to continue, and then you have to try and look to see whether one of these people can um can be able to achieve a victory at some point in time. Uh, on the, one more subject, one more point on this topic before we move mm-hmm. on. Um, Dr. Douglas has stated in the interview we had with him on SK Newsline that mm-hmm. um he is not conceding that by withdrawing the petitions, this is not a sign of concession to the results, that they still believe, he still believes that the case, the, case, the, the, the cases were strong arguments and that he will pursue them through other means through the court, obviously not through a petition. Um, you have been on record saying that, you know, he is one that, you know, has refru- refused to concede the last time around and seemingly doing so again. What does this tell you in terms of uh, the kind of person he is and the politician that, um, whether or not things have changed where Dr. Douglas is concerned. It's fashionable. It's fashionable in the in the Caribbean now. Um, we just had an election in Trinidad and Tobago. Canada Pasaba Sessa has not conceded. And she said that she will not concede because she's fighting through the courts. Um, President Donald Trump has already indicated that he may have some challenges conceding because he is arranging a postal vote or he is concerned about a court postal vote that may not be in his favor. Um, yeah, so I'm not surprised that he's not conceding because, as I said, he didn't concede last time around and he isn't con- conceding. No, I-, I listened to the interview with great interest and I just wondered whether um, it-, it may not have been useful for-, for you to have asked him, you know, well, if you're not conceding, what exactly do you propose to do? What are these initiatives that you will take to help press your cause? Um, my sense is that, you know, there's really no no uh, where to go in terms of all of this. And the fact that you're not conceding is just a way of saying, you know, I was right and I will fight this to the end. But, I mean, realistically speaking, I really don't know what other devices he can use legally to fight these matters. Um, and as I said, I really, really wish when the interview had taken place that he would have been pressed to say, you know, well, if you have not succeeded in this regard and you're not conceding, what else do you propose to do? Is it that you will carry a propaganda battle where you will continue to repeat everything, you didn't lose the election, 
But I mean, realistically, you're in opposition. You've taken out your role as leader of the opposition. So clearly that's a concession of sorts. But sadly, it's fashionable now in the Caribbean. We had President Granger who, who didn't concede. Just recently, President Granger said that he hasn't conceded but he has essentially respected the position or the opinion of GCOM that has given the, the leadership to someone else. So he, technically speaking, hasn't conceded either. Um, I think that the thing is becoming a charade where it is becoming fashionable for leaders to, to, to lose and then not concede. Um, and I, I do really wish we could go back to the, to, the, to the glory days where on the night of an election, you would have a victor and you would have someone was saying, you know, well, we wish, we wish um, the country all the best. Uh, I listened to Hillary Clinton conceding. It was a difficult thing for her to do. Uh, and she did it. But for some reason, we can't seem to get that level of, of leadership going in the Caribbean. Of late, at least. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, of late, of course. Really? Yeah. Um, Team unity. What does this now mean for team unity? We, we, we heard the prime minister when he was asked about the petitions um, prior mm -hmm. to the swearing of parliament. He essentially said that he thinks the, the petitions were nonsense. Um, in light of the outcome now, with the petitions being withdrawn, how do you think this bolsters team unity's um, reputation, so to speak, being the newly elected government? Yeah, well, you, you mentioned the words frivolous. Well, I think the prime minister mentioned the word frivolous and vexatious. Yeah, and I mean, this is a legal term that you basically says, you know, you're wasting people's time. Um, one of the things is that when something is frivolous and vexatious, then the, the withdrawal of that matter doesn't really have a whole lot of effect because no one really was concerned about it being there in the first place. And I think that that's how people saw the petitions. Uh, I don't think that team unity is any stronger or weaker as a result of that. And, and I think the reality is that most people found that the team unity second round victory was fairly impressive because they came out better than they went in. Uh, I think that it strengthened them from that point of view. And I don't really know that this has really made a huge difference because all it has done has is continue to cement the, the, the confusion within the Labour Party uh, regarding Dr. Douglas and his leadership. What will be interesting for me is whether the team unity presses on with their initiative of changing the constitution to uh, block a person like Dr. Douglas from running again. If they do that effectively, uh, and I believe they have the constitutional majority to do it now in parliament, if they do that, it does create a problem uh, because it means that Dr. Douglas is out of the equation. So they have perhaps solved the Labour Party's problem for them. So I think that that's the more interesting thing. Will the Labour Party's problems of leadership be solved by a team unity initiative that blocks Dr. Douglas or alternatively, will team unity see that there's some benefit in allowing the current arrangement because it gives Dr. Douglas the belief that he can become prime minister again. Uh, and I think that that will help to ensure that team unity can continue on a little longer. All right, on another topic altogether, um, we want to look at politics across the region and look at what's happening in other places. Now, St. Nevis was one of the first countries to have a COVID election, so to speak. We had Suriname going ahead, then St. Nevis, and Trinidad uh, was next in line, and they had their elections mm -hmm. last week. Your thoughts on it? I know you did an article on the low voter turnout and how mm -hmm. that may have impacted the elections in Trinidad, as was the case in St. Nevis. Were your thoughts on the Trinidad elections? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm always fascinated by this issue of low voter turnout. Um, you, you had a low voter turnout in St. Kitts and Nevis, but we, we know why, um, because your voters were unable to travel. And I think that, that was where, you know, you had 12,000 odd voters outside that couldn't come home and, and, and that would have made a difference. Um, in the case of Trinidad and Tobago, they have no tradition of overseas voting in Trinidad and they had a genuinely low voter turnout, lowest since 1981. I believe that it is useful for us to understand scientifically what the reasons for that were. Um, I do have a, a, a theory, and it's a theory grounded in the fact that we had a low voter turnout in Barbados in 2013. We had a low voter turnout in the United States um, in 2014, I believe it was, the presidential election that Donald Trump won. Um, low voter turnouts appear to be the electorate way, electorate's way of saying, I am not happy with one versus the other. Uh, and the easiest thing for me to do is to stay home, especially in situations where I believe that the outcome is a foregone conclusion. Um, that is what happened in uh, the United States of America, where I think that persons believed it was a foregone conclusion, uh, and in reality, it wasn't. 
That certainly was the case in Barbados in 2013, where people thought it was a foregone conclusion that Arthur would have won. Uh, and the reality is that it wasn't in loss. Um, the, the, the situation in St. Kitts and Nevis to me is different because you didn't have a genuinely low voter turnout. You had a high voter turnout. It's just that you didn't have overseas voters. I think that Trinidad and Tobago was that situation where um, more or less people expected the PNM to win and they were not particularly bothered. Um, and what we saw was a lower voter turnout in PNM strongholds. The PNM lead people did not come out to vote. Uh, in, in a place like Laventille, where you know that you're going to win 70% of the popular vote, uh, you probably wouldn't be bothered to go to vote because you don't feel motivated. And I think that a combination of COVID and the belief that they were going to win anyhow uh, led people to the stage where they didn't uh, actually go to vote. But then you had situations where they lost a seat, for example. And I think that that is an indication that a low voter turnout can actually be quite damaging. So my hope would be that they would study this scientifically. Um, I'm confident that they probably won't because in the Caribbean, we don't have a tradition of doing that. Um, and I always use as an example that, that election 2002 in the United Kingdom where they had a major study into the low voter turnout and they concluded that the low voter turnout was caused by a demobilized or de um, uh, an electorate that was not mobilized, that was not excited to, to go on vote, and therein lies the problem. Yeah. Um, when you look at also the fact that the UNC, as you pointed out, they are contesting their result because some of the results were, the, the outcomes were close. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think then, well, let me even go back, before I even talk about the, PN, the, the UNC, is it then safe to say that the PNM um, should take the results seriously um, and, and maybe do some introspection, even though they won, mm -hmm. that they may not have ticked all the, the score boxes in their in their in people's minds. No, I think of the UNC and the UNC does some serious research. Um, I, I think the UNC knows why they lost. Um, the UNC knows what they have to do, uh, and their their situation is very simple. They have to find new leadership. Um, you know, the the bar is set very low for a second term. Uh, my, my, my position is that a leader that does not win a second term in the Caribbean is a leader that ought to be looking for something else to do. Kamala Pasab Assessor won uh, almost on a landslide. Where she beat the PNM, she beat um, the, the former Prime Minister, uh, Patrick Manning, badly. You know, um, she sailed in on a wave of goodwill. Uh, and she squandered all of it in five years. She hasn't won an election since. So, you know, she had local government elections by elections and she lost all of them. Um, I think that they understand in the, in the UNC that their problem right now is leadership. They have to look for new leadership. But the challenge is, is who? Because I don't know if any of the current faces um, excite people in the way that one would want to be excited. And, and, and the feeling is that they may very well have to look outside. But, you know, the good thing with the UNC is that it's a large political organization. Uh, it's so large that it can't be controlled by any one person. And my sense is that they will, will deal fairly effectively with that whole issue of a rebranding, a remarketing, um, changing the leadership, changing the style. The UNC has to be able to reach out to people beyond the indoor community. I mean, they did very well in their heartland areas in Central and the agricultural belt, the sugar belt. They, they need to be able to move away from that and be able to capture support in, in strongholds and also in marginal constituencies, the East-West Corridor uh, is known for being neither Afro nor Indo. They, be, they need to be able to dominate that, that constituency, that, that area as well. Mm. And as you pointed out that the UNC is not controlled by any one person per se because it's a very large political organization. But we hear in the very early um, rumblings after the elections that they are calling for, that people within the party would like her to step down, but her, mm public relations officer of the party has made it very clear that that is not going to be the case and that there's a democratic process for that. And their focus right now is the recount. Um, do you sense that there may be a battle then to have that leadership change in the UNC? Yeah, that, that's not unreasonable. Um, they do have a process for changing the leadership. Uh, the last time around, the leadership didn't come up for about a year after. And then she was she was challenged by Bonilal, Rudilal Bonilal. Um, would have been the person, Rudal Munilal would have been the person that challenged her for the, the seat, for the leadership. Um, but it took about a year. And my sense is that this time around, it will probably take 
about a year before they actually get around to, to dealing with the matter of who should be your alternative leader. But that's that's UNC policy, and I think it's not unreasonable that this is the way that they would approach it. And I, I agree with the public relations officer that it's early days yet. She will assume a role as leader of the opposition. And then I think that in a course of time, they will deal with the whole question of replacing her with the alternative leader. All right. Well, quickly on the PNM, um, Dr. Keith mm -hmm. Rowley hinted that this made very well his last politics uh, because he he does, he, as he would say, just paraphrasing, he doesn't believe he should hold on to power forever. So he seems to be, you know, on his way out after this term. Um, how would you assess his stewardship of the country, of the party? And, and if he does step aside, who is the next person that's more suited in line to take over? Yeah, well, he said that he doesn't believe he should leave politics feet first. And I, I, like, I like that expression. It's one I'm going to use quite frequently. Um, you know, he has been in politics for a long time. Dr. Dr. Rowley, remember, came into politics back in the days of, of Eric Williams, um, and he served with distinction. Uh, he was one of the few seats that was uh, saved in that 1986 landslide that was was very infamous. Um, and he has continued in Parliament ever since. So he's been around for a long time. He's a household name in politics in Trinidad. He's become Prime Minister. He served for two terms and he feels that it's time for him to go. And I think that, well done. Um, we have too few leaders in the Caribbean that understand that their leadership should be something which you come in, you serve, and you move on. He's decided that it's time for him to go, and I think it's all good for him. Um, he must be tired by now. He must also feel, as he quite rightly said, that there are so many more things that he can do with his life. Uh, and I think he will follow in the distinguished tradition of P.J. Patterson in that he came, he saw, he conquered, he moved on and he gave the party the opportunity to choose someone else. No, the question as to who else is there uh, is, is an interesting one. Um, several names have come up. Uh, the name Stuart Young has come up. People seem to feel that he is attractive. Uh, he was given the COVID uh, responsibility to manage. Um, and some people feel that he managed it with some distinction. Uh, I'm not convinced that he's leadership material. Um, the Attorney General, uh, who is Faris Al-Rawi, is, is an attractive option as well. Uh, I think that he is a name that seems to have been mentioned most frequently. Um, he's young, and I think that Dr. Rowley would want, would prefer the leadership to be given to someone young, as opposed to one of the older uh, persons within the party uh, who, who may have expectations in that regard. Uh, but those are the types of names that I believe have been coming up. Uh, and I know I think that pretty much there are options within the organization now because they, they have quite a few young people in there other than, than um, the two that I mentioned that may be in line uh, for leadership uh, and they will be looking at. So they, they, they have, they have um, I think they have quite a few options in there. Uh, and very soon you may have uh, persons pitching for leadership in, in a way that one would expect so that they can be uh, upfront whenever Dr. Rowley decides it's time for him to go. All right. Um, I, I did say that we wanted to talk about Jamaica, but before we get to that, uh, we have to talk about Ghana because they've finally <laughs> had a government after what, five, six months uh, since their election in March. Um, is, is this your view? I mean, first of all, the, the, the length of time it took for this to happen is certainly a blot on not just Ghana, but the entire Caricom region politically. But the fact that it's now happened and, and, and things have now seemed to have gone to normal, so to speak, what do you anticipate? I know the opposition, now opposition, is saying that they're filing election petitions. But mm -hmm. do you see this as the final close to that chapter and things have moved on? Yeah. I, I think so. Um, you know, the, an election petition that deals with, um, I think, in the case of, of your your election petition, the one that's on the table now, we're looking at uh, about 50 votes that have to be evaluated in terms of whether they're valid or not. Um, that election petition will take some time. Um, in the case of Guyana, you have uh, a claim that 115,000 votes are invalid. Uh, I, I don't expect that the court will be able to deal with that in any hurry because it's a lot of, 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 of issues. Um, they would have preferred for a situation where uh, Lewin Field would have been able to say that those votes are invalid because he determines that they're invalid. Uh, thankfully, um, the courts have been persuaded to say, let's go through the procedure. The, the challenge with an election petition is that you have now to determine the authenticity of each one of those 
115,000 votes. And you can't do it in, in the summary way that Lowen Field would have done it. You, you have to do it in a thorough and exhaustive way where the court has to be convinced that each and every one of those 115,000 votes are indeed invalid. Um, and that the people who you claim were dead are really dead because we had a situation before where some of the dead people presented themselves, you know, in, in the words of, of, uh, of Shakespeare. Uh, was it Shakespeare? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> the rumors of my demise were greatly exaggerated. Uh, I don't believe it was Shakespeare, it was Mark Twain. I don't know, I don't remember. But the, the point is that um, where you have people saying, you know, that uh, I'm alive, I'm not, I'm, I'm here. And then there are people who were supposed to be overseas uh, and they were told that, you know, they were overseas. And, and the people said, no, I'm not overseas, I'm here. And I actually voted. So they, they, they will have to prove this with a slightly higher degree of rigor. And I think that that's part of the reason that the election petition has not been filed. Because my assumption is that they would have filed it uh, uh, probably the day after the election, simply because they said that the evidence was so overwhelming. But as I suspected, um, they probably now have to gather evidence and put it together uh, because it, it wasn't really there in the first place. And that is going to take some time. So the election petition, I believe, will keep the opposition busy for the better part of five years. Uh, and in the meantime, the PPP Civic will get on with running the government. Um, they have thus far to me not engaged in a witch hunt i think that the people they have gone after were people like Harmon and so on who were expected to to be removed uh, frankly i don't know how you could be part of the uh, apnu administration that frustrated the people for the better part of 100 days and then believe that you have a role in a new government and that you're not resigning your seat uh, and then you can claim victimization when someone tries to move you i think that's a bit fanciful the, 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 a lot of those people will go and i think that there will be some other key faces that will be replaced but uh, i'm convinced thus far that the the ppp civic is getting on with the job of establishing the government and, and beginning to deal with the challenges they have with covid initially uh, and then secondly, dealing with Guyana's um, oil revenues that, that have to be looked at and assessed and also the Venezuela border dispute. Uh, and they will get on with everything, you know, in, in shortest possible order. Uh, and I believe that we really can't say uh, for another year or so, start to do an evaluation of how they have been able to do, especially as their, 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 their term has been truncated so heavily by the first uh, hundred and something days. Now, the the, the the issue of Guyana um, and and especially now with the the oil uh, fortune that they've now found, um, how capable do you think the PPP will be able to remove the racial divide? Because that is something that has affected Guyana for mm -hmm. decades since independence, um, and and there were many who feared that should a PPP ret uh, government return, that that will continue. Um, in light of, however, what President Ephraim Ali has said in his comments, comment. Um, his speech uh, when he became president. Do you think that this is a new day for Ghana, that not only have they mm -hmm. found this oil fortune, but mm -hmm. the way they govern, the way they do politics will change? I, I'm convinced that they can. I'm convinced that the PPP Civic knows the knows what they're up against. I think that they understand, based on what they have seen, the level of polarization in the country and the danger that this is causing to the development of the country. And I think that they will make an effort to do differently uh, and to ensure that they share the wealth evenly among the people in Guyana. Uh, I'm equally convinced, however, that whatever they do will not be satisfactory for the APNU AFC and that they will always be told that they have uh, fallen short of the glory. So um, as to whether or not I believe they can, I think that they, they, they probably can, uh, you know, make a, a good hand of things. Um, but I am also convinced that they will not be, uh, it will not be acceptable to the PPP, to the APNU AFC group. Uh, and they will continue to face claims of discrimination on the basis of race. What about the the notion that Irvin um, Ali is, uh, who is fairly experienced as a politician, mm -hmm. is uh, just the mouthpiece or the puppet, so to speak, but like mm -hmm. a term of uh, president, uh, Vice President Jagdeo, mm -hmm. who was a former president, is a former president, and um, seemed to be calling the shots in the PPP. Yeah, I mean, but that's what people voted for. Um, it's not a situation where Guyanese went into it with their eyes closed. I think that they went into it with their eyes wide open. When you look at the role that Barack Jagdeo, President Jagdeo, played in the election as leader of the opposition, 
and then in the negotiations after the election. I think it was painfully obvious to people that when they were voting for that list, they were voting for ultimately two presidents. Um, so they were voting for a de facto president and a de jure president. And I, I am convinced that most people understand where the power lies within that. In normal circumstances, I would say, it's a dangerous thing to have a person like President Jack Dio, um, you know, within the, 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 the reach of the presidency because it wouldn't allow Dr. Ali to be the person that he always wanted to be. But it's also clear to me that that's what Guyanese voted for. Guyanese voted to have uh, President Ali and then to also have President Jack Dio looking over his shoulder. And I think that that's, that's essentially what they had. This can be a good process of tutelage, one could argue, for President Ali, who may very well emerge as a brilliant leader uh, down the road. But I also think that for the time being, we, we, we understand where the, the power lies within the PPP Civic. And I think that that is the way that Guyanese want it for the time being. All right. Finally, on the Guyana situation before we mm -hmm. progress. Um, mm -hmm. Well, for, as for APNO AFC, um, they are now in a situation where we don't know if the coalition, even in opposition, will last, considering what has happened. We don't know the future of mm -hmm. uh, uh, former President Granger as leader of the coalition, or whether his health will permit him to be active in politics. Where do you see the opposition now in light of um, this new result? The opposition has some challenges. They, they keep talking about a new brigade of people within the PNC that is moving to take them forward. Um, I, I would, would be great if that happened. Uh, however, I am not convinced that they will. Um, they need to make some changes. I, I think that the first thing that has to happen is that President Granger needs to go. I don't think his health has anything to do with it. I just think he has a leadership style that's totally inappropriate for the challenges that they face as an organization. Um, my, my hope would be that the APLU AFC rebrands itself as a new organization. I think that the branding of the PNC is now uh, a bit of a, 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 a albatross really around the neck of the group. I don't know that the uh, the PNC branding has helped the organization any. And I think that it would be useful for, them, useful for them to leave that behind in support of a new entity that captures the, the best parts of the APNU group, which is the PNC and other political parties, and also the, the, um, the AFC group. Uh, bring it into one political party and see if you can create a tent that will give younger people the opportunity and a platform to take the organization in a different direction. Um, I do fear that the, there is tremendous baggage associated with the PNC brand and the fact that the PNC brand um, has basically struggled to, to gain a hold on to office since Burnham closed his eyes. And, and you, would, you would remember that subsequently they have had challenges winning elections. They have been in opposition now for 20 something years and, and and this period of time where they were in government ended it didn't end well so you're back to square one so my sense is that they have to ask themselves is there any benefit for us maintaining this pnc brand uh is it good yes it has supporters but does it have enough supporters to take it back into office and should we not spend this five-year period uh looking for bright leadership uh, looking for ways to rebrand the organization, studying what we have to do and to bring it back. Because this last period that has just passed is something that people are not going to forget a lot for a long time. I will not forgive them for a long time. Uh, and I do feel that they have to see this as an opportunity to, to leave all of that baggage behind and to move forward in, in, in a different way. Um, and yeah, I don't believe that that President Granger will be the person to take them forward. Over now to Jamaica, um, mm -hmm. they call elections. The Prime Minister, Andrew Holness, called the elections last week. Um, he said, essentially indicating that election day will be on mm -hmm. September 3, in the, in the height of the pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. Now another country in the Caribbean having a pandemic election, so to speak. Uh, who will this favor? Uh, we've seen it in favor in the incumbent in two cases, mm -hmm. in and Trinidad and Tobago. Will that be the case for Jamaica? Yeah, my, my, my argument is the same, that natural, disaster favor, natural disasters favor the incumbent. I think the incumbent, in, in the case of Jamaica, uh, will also be favored in this situation. And the public opinion polls are, are suggesting that this will be the case. Um, I do feel, however, that we have good data from Trinidad and Tobago that can help us understand what could potentially happen in Jamaica. If there is a low turnout in Jamaica, 
because people feel based on the same public opinion polls that the uh, the government of, of, of uh, Prime Minister Holness is running away with the election. Uh, will they be motivated to come out? Will the uh, COVID situation get worse? So I think that these are the kinds of factors that we have to take on board now in terms of our analysis. But I would say that at this point in time, all things being considered, yes, definitely um, Andrew Holness is um, uh, JLP is, is in firm control. Uh, however, we still have quite a few weeks to go before September the 3rd. Bearing in mind that this far out in Trinidad and Tobago, uh, we were all convinced that it would have been a runaway for Dr. Rowley. Uh, but then when we saw election night, we realized that, you know, there was a struggle that took place. Um, if, if that happens in Jamaica, it, it will make for a very interesting nail-biting finish on election night. Yeah, indeed, because of course of the, the thin margin, but Precisely, in, yeah. in the case of, um, if we look at the tail of the two parties, the two leaders, um, we hear in the case of uh, Prime Minister Holness that he is probably one of the most, and based on polling that has been done, the mm -hmm. most popular prime ministers Jamaica's had in recent years. And then if you compare um, the, his, his challenger in, in the case of Dr. Phillips, uh, mm -hmm. there has been a lot of infighting in the party in terms of the leadership. There are some who still feel mm -hmm. that Peter Bunting is a better option for leadership as opposed to, to Peter Phillips, and that if the PMP were to lose the election, it would be Peter Phillips's fault. What are your thoughts on the two leaders? Yeah, I think you just said it quite rightly there, that if the, if the and I don't have a difficulty with anything you just said in the analysis, that um, the, GL, the PMP has had difficulty pulling the leadership together. There has been clearly an open battle in that um, Dr. Phillips has been challenged openly by, by um, uh, Bunting, and I think if he were to lose the election, then it would definitely be one of the reasons would be the, the inability to pull the party together as a, as a strong unit to be able to fight the election, certainly in the by-elections that they have faced. Uh, and, and the one that they recently lost, uh, the feeling was that there was a lack of unity that was a problem within that organization. Uh, as a result, I believe if the uh, PNP loses this election, that neither of them uh, will continue as leader, and I think that the party will start really look to some of its new blood to to take over leadership. Uh, and I have a particular name in mind that's looking quite good as an alternative. Uh, so my sense is that if the PMP has to start looking again for leadership, they have a fairly well entrenched uh, program where when they are looking for a leader, they go far and wide. They have nominations. They have an internal election, uh, and it's an internal election, which is a fierce battle. And I think that in an environment like that, a person who attempted to undermine the previous leader is probably not going to do very well. So, so my sense is that this is do or die for Dot Phillips. Uh, and if he doesn't make it, as I said, I think that the party will begin to look at not the traditional suspects regarding leadership, but will begin to look elsewhere to see what alternative leaders they can find. But I agree with the other analysis that you gave that, you know, it disappears as though um, Prime Minister Holness going in is quite popular, um, which is fascinating because, I mean, Jamaican dollar is now trading at 151 to the US, 150 to the US dollar, which is one of the lowest levels it has been in a long time. For some strange reason, Prime Minister Holness has done a good job of convincing people that these economic challenges are nothing of his doing. Um, because he has had some major economic challenges. Uh, he has also had some issues with crime. He's had a, a, a state of emergency on more than one occasion. Uh, so he's had some problems. He did well on infrastructure, and I think people are seeing roads and buildings going up and whatnot, and they think that you know this is a good thing. But he, he has some challenges, but his public relations is excellent. He has done a good job of convincing people that he is a sparkling new leader and he's young and he wears his, his Clark shoes and, and he does all the things that his opponent doesn't because his opponent is a man of, 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 of um, advanced years uh, who has had less, uh, probably more success in terms of balancing the books uh, than in terms of being the, the, the king of social media that, that Prime Minister Holness has become. So it's a, a peculiarly interesting battle in Jamaica uh, to see which of them will, will win the, the day. Thanks again, Peter, for taking time okay. on to us. Okay. Okay. Always good chatting with you. Take care. Voice of the Caribbean Radio, VOC Radio. Stay locked on. And that will do it for this edition of uh, Let's Talk St. Kitts Nevis right here on Voice of the Caribbean Radio at voiceofthecaribbean.net, reaching the Caribbean and beyond. Remember, this program will be rebroadcast 
on Wednesday and Friday of this week. And you can also listen to it on demand by visiting our website, voiceofthecaribbean.net, and click on VOC On Demand. I'm Andre Huey. Thank you for listening. And also to let you know, there will be a video version of this uh, later on on our Facebook page. You can visit the Facebook page. It will air live later on today, and it will also re- it will be available for on-demand viewing. You can also visit sknnewsline.com, and it will be in rotation on that website as well as in the special features segment of the SK Newsline mobile app. Again, thank you for listening to Let's Talks and Kiss Nevis. I'm Andre Huey, and stay tuned to Voice of the Caribbean Radio, reaching the Caribbean and beyond. Let's Talk St. Kitts and Nevis, a talk show and current affairs program focusing on St. Kitts and Nevis, the Caribbean, and international news. Every Tuesday at 10 a.m. on Voice of the Caribbean Radio, Join host Andre Huey as he delves into topical issues of the day. We'll open the lines so you can call in and be part of the discussion. And he'll feature guests each week to help shed light on the various topics of discussion. Let's talk St. Kitts and Nevis with Andre Huey, Tuesdays at 10 a.m. with rebroadcasts on Wednesdays and Fridays, also at 10 a.m. on Voice of the Caribbean Radio, reaching the Caribbean and beyond.